0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Five years ago, my next guest offered us this simple advice on what to eat. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. The man behind that advice is Michael Pollan, writing in his book, In Defense of Food, and Eater's Manifesto. Now that Pollan's told us what to eat, he's taken us to the next logical step, how to cook it. His new book is Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation, a tour of time-tested techniques for preparing food inside and outside the kitchen, from smoking a roast over wood coals to slowly simmering that Sunday ragu, baking sourdough bread, even, even making your own pickles. A lot of pickling and fermentation in that book. We're going to get into that in our talk with him. And, and you know, what you learn from this book is you're not just feeding yourself. With all that home-cooked fare, he says, there are hundreds of species of bacteria living in your guts. As Pollen writes, we're eating for one when we need to be eating for, oh, a few trillion. How does uh, what we eat change those communities of microbes? And what is the connection between the health of those bacteria to the overall health of our whole body? And for all uh, you raw foodies out there, pollen says our bodies may be specially adapted for cooked food, like it or not, because there's evidence humans have been cooking for nearly a million years, if not longer. Lots of science in this book that may change the way you eat. We won't be taking your calls this hour, but if you want more information about what we're talking about, go to our website at ScienceFriday.com. Let me formally introduce Michael Pollan, author of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation and the Omnivore's Dilemma. Among others, he joins us from WRTI in Philadelphia. Welcome back. Thank you, Ira. Good to be here. Why a book about cooking? Is it a natural extension of your food interest?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it, I wasn't expecting to write about cooking, but, you know, I had written one book about the earth end of the food chain, Omnivore's Dilemma, and and how the food is produced from the earth. And then I would leapt ahead and looked at nutrition science and written a couple books about health, including In Defense of Food and, and Food Rules. And I realized I hadn't really paid attention to this middle link where the stuff coming off the farms is transformed into meals. And the more I learned about the whole food chain, the more influential I realized that middle step was. Because what happens on the farm is directly influenced by the way we're eating. If we're eating mm. industrially, if we're letting large corporations, fast food chains cook our food, we're going to have a, a, a huge industrialized monoculture agriculture because big likes to buy from big. So I realized, wow, how we cook or whether we cook has a huge bearing on what kind of agriculture we're going to have.
0: You know, and you, and you could have subtitled your book Back to the Future because a lot of what you talk about <laughs> in your book is going back to old ways of, of preparing food.
1: Yeah, I'm a little freaked out by how reactionary this book is in some ways. I mean, I am. uh, But the more I study food, the more I see that most of the innovations uh, have not been very positive. Beginning in about 1880, the the long history of cooking, if you go back to the million years ago, or two million years ago, it may even be, um, every time we came up with a new technology for processing food, beginning with fire and then pottery that allows us to cook um, in water over fires, and then bread making, cheese making, all these technologies made food dramatically more nutritious, easier to digest, tastier, and then something happens. And I and I date it to about 1880 when food processing takes a, a fateful wrong turn. And ever since, with the exception of sort of frozen, you know, frozen vegetables and canned vegetables, I, I can't point to a Innovation that has really contributed to our health, perhaps to our convenience, but not to our health. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about some of these older ideas that are still used by today today, but not really by Western cultures as much. And for example, fermentation. I'm going to quote from your book: "Fermentation puts us in touch with the ever-present tug in life, death."
1: yeah well you know once you once you start studying fermentation're you 're acutely aware of the fact that everything that lives contains uh, the seeds of its own decomposition, and that living on in the same way that on the leaves of a cabbage at any given time are various uh, bacteria species just waiting for a breach in the cell walls to to leap in and digest and rot that cabbage. Uh, you've got a lot of bacteria on you and in you, um, waiting for the same moment. And um, these bacteria are our friends, but uh, when we die, they uh, they get they make quick work of fermenting us. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, you go around the world, and every culture has uh, very important ferments. This is a, a cultural universal, it appears. And there's a good reason for it. Um, fermented food, first of all, is, is, you know, before refrigeration, that's how you preserved food. I mean, you could dry it. Um, but the big way to preserve, especially vegetables, that allowed people to get through the whole year um, was to ferment food, dig pits and bury food and have this kind of controlled rot. Uh, and what happens when you ferment food? is that the lactobacillus um, basically break the sugars down into lactic acid, which is a preservative. And so you acidify the food, and along the way, it also gets much more nutritious and much more flavorful. Um, and, but this has just been a, you know, a mainstay of civilization uh, right up until refrigeration gave mm. us another way to preserve vegetables. And you say it gets more nutritious. Why is that? Well, when you ferment, and and this is true for other kinds of cooking, you're essentially taking digestion out of the body. You're externalizing digestion and starting that process of breakdown outside the body. So you take uh, a very kind of uh, fibrous plant and you start to ferment it, let's say a cabbage leaf. And the bacteria uh, produce various enzymes that begin to break down the cellulose and the lignin and, uh, and the other fibers in, uh, in the plants. So it's easier to break down um, for our bodies. We don't have to chew as much. We don't have to uh, you know, use as much digestive action or, or, uh, or acids. So it's, it starts the process of digestion before you've taken a bite. Mm-hmm. You talk about
0: whom you call uh, the Johnny Appleseed of fermentation, Sander Katz.
1: Oh, yeah, has he been on your show I, n- not recently oh okay, but uh, sander is he 's the guru of uh, of vegetable ferments of all ferments actually, and he he was one of my teachers and he 's a great you know I, I describe him as a pacifist in the in the world war against bacteria, um, you know much of much of public health, much of science for the last hundred and fifty years or so, really since Pasteur has been obsessed with um, bacteria as the enemy. Um, and that indeed, there are pathogens that, that um, pathogenic bacteria that make us sick and cause disease, but you know ninety nine point nine percent of bacteria are uh, benign and and a great number of them are also actually you know in a symbiotic relationship with us. they help us, uh, and we need them we 're dependent on them, uh, and they perform various services, ecosystem services for our bodies that are that are critical. so when I started fermenting and studying with sander. Uh, it completely changed my thinking about bacteria because I'd grown up in a household where, you know, my mother would throw out a can of, of um, tomatoes if it got a dent, even if that right. dent came from being dropped because right. she thought it was sure it had botulism and we always heard about trichinosis mm-hmm. and lockjaw and there were all these bacterial hazards uh, lurking in our food. And now I court the bacteria. Um, so I've gone through a real revolution, and that's because of these fermentos that I, I hung out with. Yeah, and, and you say that we are obsessed with,
0: um, with cleanliness. Uh, America is just so fearful of bacteria, we don't realize that there are trillions of them living in our bodies. And that, as you say, they help us and that bacteria have evolved with us. And, and, and in fact, one in, some place in your book you say that 99% of the DNA in our bodies
1: are, are not ours. It's Yeah, it's not yeah, ours. It's microbial. You're only – Ari, you're only 10% human. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and you're 90% microbial. And um, so, you know, these microbiologists who are doing this work now on what's called the microbiome, that's the collective genes of all the microbes in your body, uh, are really encouraging us now to see ourselves not as individuals, but as superorganisms. You know, we're kind of like a coral reef. Um, there's a great many other species occupying us, sharing our bodies, and Uh, we need them and we need to look out for them. And one of the hallmarks of the Western diet, as you alluded to in your intro, is that it's been designed to very effectively feed us the 10% with these, you know, we process food to make it much more readily absorbable, you know, lots of refined sugars, uh, lots of refined carbohydrates, lots of easily absorbed fats, but very little is left for the large intestine, where the, the, the real action is going on, where you have this interior fermentation, if you will, that um, we're not feeding very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and because those guys like different food than you do in some ways. They really like fiber, for example. Um, they love plants, they love a variety of fiber, too. That's a, that's a, uh, a real mistake of, I think, what, what we're doing now. We're kind of supplementing everything with fiber. But we're only putting in one or two different kinds of fiber. And every, every different microbe is, probably likes to chomp on a different kind.
0: Hmm. I wanted to talk about a couple of new studies that just came out suggesting that red meat and, and eggs might contribute to heart disease risk, not because of the usual suspects like cholesterol, because of how the microbes in our guts digest steak and eggs.
1: Yeah, fascinating work. Um, basically, there are, if you eat a lot of meat or a lot of eggs, you have cultivated a population of certain types of bacteria. And in fact, they haven't even identified exactly which they are that metabolize uh, or basically ferment those foodstuffs. And one of the byproducts of that fermentation are compounds that have been linked with heart disease in both cases. Um, why this should be, we don't really understand. Um, many of the byproducts of this fermentation are very good for you. Um, although I was talking to a biologist the other day who was saying, well, we have to remember these, these bacteria, some of them are just there and they're yeah. taking advantage of us. And um, they're, some of these more toxic byproducts really don't affect people till they're past their childbearing age. Because I was wondering, why would we have evolved to have uh, microbes that would do this? And he was pointing out that, well, the, you know, natural selection doesn't care about you after you've had kids. And, in fact, one microbiologist, speaking of another uh, another species that, that is implicated in uh, gastric cancers and uh, peptic ulcers, H. pylori, um, the scientist said, well, maybe it's there to help shuffle us off the stage when our childbearing years mm. are over. I thought that was a rather that sobering idea.
0: Talking with a Michael Pollan author of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation on Science Friday. And we're going to take a short break and be right back with Michael Pollan. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. And we're back with Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and his new book, Cooked A Natural History of Transformation. Uh, and one of the most fascinating parts, uh, and as you know, Michael, from listening to Science Friday, we, we're, we love to talk about the biome and the bacteria in the guts and everything that, that help us, and is the realization, and you talk about the, this in your book, that this is like, uh, to me, it's like the undiscovered world under the ocean. We know so little about the, what's under mm-hmm. the water. We know so little about what's inside our guts and how that might be responsible for, the,
1: for us being healthy. Well, you know, we've only just acquired the tools to peer into it. Um, it's only recently that we have powerful enough sequencing machines that you can take a sample of, um, of feces or um, the sweat on your hands or the saliva in your mouth and sequence everything. Um, and this is really only – we've only had this for about 10 years, the ability to do this. Um, and we have also haven't had, though, the intellectual tools. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in that case, it was bringing the, the concepts of ecology to the gut and, and these, bio, uh, these bacteria and realizing that there is a system – and that it's all working together in a certain way, and that the ecosystem has a dynamic to it. And for example, once it's organized, and it, it doesn't happen until you're about three years old, it resists invasion. Uh, and that's a very important ecosystem service uh, mm-hmm. of the gut: is that when you when you uh, ingest a pathogen, uh, the community your your community works very hard to keep that pathogen from getting into your bloodstream or otherwise, uh, you know, hanging out too long. Um, so it is, a, it, it is a whole new world, and it's, we're just at the beginning, and the kind of excitement I found talking to these microbiologists, and they're not just microbiologists, by the way, they're ecologists, microbial ecologists now working in this area, chemists who look at these byproducts of these bugs. Um, you know, you can feel Nobel Prizes in the air. There's that that crackle of excitement that, I mean, you know this from interviewing a lot of scientists, when they're on the trail of really big discoveries. And in this case, they're very big discoveries about human health that are probably not too far away. This is not something they're they're teaching in medical school.
0: You know, they hardly started at teaching medical students about eating correctly. Right. You know, I, I no. can't imagine they're talking about how keeping your gut healthy is going to make you healthier or lead to good health. Not yet.
1: And not yet. And one of the things that uh, I was very curious about is, okay, well, now that we know that this community is very important to our health, what can we do to garden it? You know, how can we cultivate it and make it more healthy? And a lot of the scientists I interview aren't ready to make recommendations, Mm -hmm. and and they're very concerned not to overpromise the way the human genome scientists were promising all sorts of cures that somehow haven't yet materialized. So they're very cautious, but if you ask them what they've changed in their own life, it's very interesting to hear the kinds of uh, changes they've made in their diet and uh, in their attitude toward things like sanitation. Mm. Many of them talk about, well, I make a point to encourage my kid to play outside as much as possible and play in the dirt, um, expose, them, expose them to bacteria, just lighten up a little bit in, on the hygiene routine. Um, many of them will say that they're eating many, uh, much less processed food. Right. And I asked them why that is. And I figured it was all about the... Uh, the lack of fiber in processed food, and that's part of it. Um, but the other is they're very concerned about common food additives that may not that have never been tested for their impact on the microbes. Mm-hmm. They've only been tested on their impact on the ten percent. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, they they're worried about uh, some of those chemicals. Um, and they're you know these guys are really into eating whole grains and a variety of whole grains. Um, so there are things we can do to start feeding um, the microbiome, and, and an important one is fermented foods. Let's talk about and that. that. A, yeah, tell us,
0: tell us what because you have a very interesting experience that you it didn't go well for you <laughs> at the beginning when you started experimenting yourself fermenting foods.
1: Yeah, I made a batch of sauerkraut that had a slight. Uh, overtone of septic, uh, septic tank. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I hate it when at that a happens. Certain, yeah. at, a, at a certain point, and uh, I think I'd fermented a little bit too warm, and I opened it up at one point. I was like, "Whoo, this is bad!" And I was about to toss it, but before I did, I wrote to Sander and uh, Sander Katz, and I said, "Should I? Is, am I on the wrong track here?" And he said, give it another week. He's so relaxed. I mean, as someone who loves bacteria, is likely to be very relaxed about this stuff. And he said, sometimes, you know, there's a succession going on, an ecological succession in a sauerkraut or a kimchi or a pickle. And one, one variety of microbe is kind of proliferating for a little while, poisoning the atmosphere with whatever its byproducts are, acidifying it progressively. And then another one takes over. And he said, you're in the middle of this and there may be an enterococcus, uh, you know, basically an intestinal uh, microbe that had gotten in there and is, is proliferating now. But it'll be succeeded by something else. So I waited another two weeks and it was fine. And that stench had gone away. And uh, the climax species of the fermentation ecosystem, which is a, a, a lactobacillus plantarum, and you find this in pickles and kimchi and everything. It's the acid-loving oak of the, of the system. And uh, it had finally dominated and stabilized the situation, and I had a very nice sauerkraut, uh, except that I then got mold in it, um, so, and it got mushy. Um, and that was another argument for keeping it cool. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of cooking um, because you can't control everything. As, mm-hmm. as one cheesemaker said, this is nature imperfectly mastered. Um, the yeah. best you can do is kind of guide it uh, down this pathway or that, but you can't call all the shots in a fermentation. So, so fermentation is basically cooking without the heat. Exactly. It is, it is cooking food without any heat whatsoever. And what a miracle that you can do that. I mean, I don't know that people realize just how simple it is, but if you simply dice up a cabbage, salt it, then mix the salt around by hand and bruise the leaves as much as you can, um, the bacteria lurking on those leaves will get right to work. The salt will draw the liquid out of the leaves, creating your own brine, and then you put it in a crock. And within 24 hours, it will be bubbling, and you will hear uh, these uh, bubbles of carbon dioxide, which is one of the byproducts of the bacteria. And they will just, their populations will bloom, and they'll get to work on this transformation. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's one of the most magic of of all the transformations
0: I learned. Uh, Talking with Michael Pollan. Author of *Cooked: A Natural History of Transformation*, a really you, you always write fascinating books. But I, as someone who likes to cook myself, I found this even more fascinating. And as, and as someone who loves cheese of all kinds, mm-hmm. your chapter on the the PhD cheese nun, in, in yeah, the, Sister
1: Noella. She was ter- tell us about her a little bit. Well, she's an amazing character. She is a, a nun, uh, and she's in a Benedictine Abbey in Connecticut, in Bethlehem, Connecticut. And she learned a few years ago. They had cows there, and they, they were trying to figure out what to do with the milk. And a, um, a cheesemaker from France came over and, and taught them how to make a very traditional French Saint-Nectaire, it's called, from the Auvergne. And um, she is making it according to a traditional recipe that would give conniptions to the (laughs) FDA or any local public health authority. And the reason for that is she makes it in a wooden barrel with a wooden um, spoon or ladle to, to, to stir it. Now, you cannot sterilize wood. Um, And in fact, the instructions for this cheese are – and talk about learning to love bacteria. The instructions for washing it out is just rinse it with a little water, no soap, no, no attempt to disinfect. The public health department tried to close her down. She appealed to uh, the Mother Superior, uh, and she um, got permission to go to the University of Connecticut and become a microbiologist, get her PhD, so that she could defend her cheesemaking on scientific grounds, which she did as follows. This was, she set up this brilliant experiment. Most cheese today, all cheese except for hers, I would guess, and maybe in parts of Europe, are made in stainless steel, which is we think of as the ultimate in hygienic technology, right? Because you can really sterilize it. Well, she got two batches of raw milk from her cows. She put one of them in a stainless steel container, and she put the other in her, her wooden barrel with the white film, and she inoculated them deliver, deliberately with E. coli, waited a couple hours, and then measured the levels. Well... In the stainless steel, E. coli bloomed magnificently and there was very high, very dangerous levels of E. coli in that milk. In the wooden barrel, the levels were vanishingly small. And what had happened was that the lactobacillus that lived in the wooden barrel got to work digesting the lactose in the milk, producing lactic acid, and they acidified the milk and killed off the E. coli. So you realize these traditional peasant cheesemakers in France had been practicing a kind of folk microbiology without even knowing it, um, strictly through trial and error. They had found a system that defended itself against pathogens. Um, and uh and with this experiment, which she did for the health inspector, they backed off and she continues to make Cheese, or her her um, the other nuns do. She doesn't actually do it, and she's done such such damage to her, the carpal tunnels in her wrist from making cheese all these years that other people are making it. But they're still making cheese in this traditional manner, and and it's a wonderful product. Does it start out
0: with raw milk?
1: Yes, she she and she feels strongly about that. A lot of cheesemakers do um, raw milk because it has so much bacteria in it, has a lot more flavor too. Uh, every kind of bacteria in raw milk is producing an enzyme that's, that is itself breaking down products in the milk and, and creating flavor. So mm-hmm. most cheesemakers will tell you that raw milk cheese, mm-hmm. uh, even though a certain risk is attached to it, uh, produces a lot more flavorful uh, cheese. T- talking
0: with Michael Pollan, author of Cooked, uh, just a few minutes to go, Michael, but I want to make sure you talk about how you make bread. Because the way you get your starter dough going is different than I'm sure ninety nine percent of of cooks do.
1: Well, most people use yeast, right. uh, and I used to use yeast in the very little you know very few times I made bread. but I strongly recommend trying to create your own starter, which is not that hard. Um, basically, you make a paste of flour and water um, and you make it the consistency of, say pancake batter and you whip air into it with a fork or a a whisk, um, as often as you think of it as you're going through your kitchen um, for several days, eventually microbes, uh, both uh, fungi and bacteria, will find their way into this new habitat you've created and they will colonize it. And it will start bubbling and you'll realize it's alive. And from that point on, you have a starter that you can have for the rest of your life as long as you feed it. You have to feed it every day, or you can kind of put it into suspended animation. Like right now, my starter is uh, is in the fridge, in the back of the fridge, till I get home from book tour. And this, if you make bread with this starter, uh, a couple tablespoons of that instead of yeast, the results are astounding. Um, there is just so much more flavor. Um, and if you're making whole grain bread it's just it's just incomparable. You can't make good whole grain bread with yeast. it crumbles in the toaster and it just has very little uh, character so learning this little trick of you know using the traditional sourdough starter, I mean yeast is fine, but it's a monoculture it's like this thoroughbred uh, microbe that does one thing which is add air to bread, but all these other you know, uh, members of that little sourdough community add so much more, um, not just yeast. There are yeasts in it, mm. but they add uh, a, a tang to things and a, and a really complicated flavor. And they, break, they even break down the gluten in ways that makes that bread, for people who have trouble with gluten, much easier to digest. Okay. Uh, the Italians have done interesting studies to show that if you properly ferment a bread with a sourdough, uh, gluten will not, will not be a problem for you.
0: And people should not be fearful of just stuff falling into the dough as it's sitting
1: there? Uh, no, that's bacteriophobia yeah. right yeah, there. that's exactly um, what no, I'm asking. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, um, they're not. Uh, I, I've never heard a story of toxins in uh, a sourdough starter. Again, it's an acidic environment. Right. Uh, lactobacillus are, are, are central to that ecosystem, and they protect it. Um, these, these communities can look out for themselves without a lot of help from us.
0: And uh, I'm gonna, you know, you got me thinking about going back to bread baking again because it was so such an interesting part I, of the book. About
1: that. I got I got really deep into it, and I'm still doing it. I find it incredibly um, satisfying, very sensual. Um, at a certain point, I was able to throw away my recipe books and, and trust my senses and, and what dough should smell and taste and feel like, uh, and realizing that when it was ready. And it's also it's just alive, you know. And I really it's sort of like gardening for me. You're in this dialogue with these other species. You just can't see them.
0: Michael, it's a delightful book, and I want to thank you for, and wish you good luck, and thank you for taking time to be with us today. Always fun, Ira. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Michael Pollan, author of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. It's, as I say, it's a wonderful read. You will really will enjoy it, and it, w- it will change the way you make food and the way you look and eat it. So pick up, uh, I recommend picking up a copy whenever you can. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you. I'm Ira Flato, and this is Science Friday from NPR. Michael got us so interested in fermentation we thought we'd offer you some help in trying your hand at fermentation. What better first project than pickles, homemade fermented pickles. And Flora Lickman found a fermentation guru. I'm talking with Professor of Food Microbiology at the University of Nebraska. This is Bob Hudkins. And would it be fair to call you a pickle expert?
2: Um, well, I guess I'm an expert in fermented foods, and a pickle is a fermented food, so I guess that's fair enough.
0: <laughs> okay, so there are different kinds of pickles, right? Will you break them down for me?
2: The pickles that, that we eat most of the time are actually not fermented. These are just fresh pickles that are packed in a brine. Sometimes they're pasteurized. Sometimes they're not but the pickle that's fermented is the genuine dill pickle that is actually becoming fairly hard to find these days. Is that right? So if you live in New York City, you can go on in a deli and you could find a pickle in a barrel and that's a fermented pickle. But out here in the Midwest, I actually have a hard time finding pickles to bring into my class to show the student what a true fermented pickle is. I remembered from my Younger days when I'd go to the grocery store and find a barrel and use tongs to s- pull out a fermented pickle but it, it's fairly rare these days.
0: Could you walk us through a recipe for a fermented pickle for someone who wants to try this at home?
2: So, um I I have to tell you that I've not done this myself. <laughs> so, um so with that caveat, um you know, and actually I would probably recommend there's sources online that you could find to do this, but it's basically about a 5% salt brine mixed one-to-one by weight, one-to-one with pickling cucumbers in some sort of crock device or a small barrel. You could even do it in mason jars and then take a baggie with also some brine in it and lay that on top of the cucumbers to weigh them down. But the idea is to squeeze out the air, try to create an anaerobic environment as best you can, and also protect the pickles from from the elements.
0: How do you know when they're done?
2: You should see some bubbling when, when the fermentation begins after just a couple of days. And it's safe to taste that brine. And when it tastes tart, I'd probably give it a week at room temperature. You probably have pickles. And very little could go wrong. Um, There's little opportunity for any kind of pathogen to grow in this kind of brine. In fact, I'm not aware of any adverse effect by making these pickles at home, provided that you haven't improperly canned them. That would be a different story. And uh, a week of fermentation, you have pickles.
0: Sounds easy. Thanks, Bob Hudkins, for joining me today. You're
2: welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you today.
0: We'll be right back.